I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Lee Berger. Professor Berger is a paleoanthropologist. He lives and works in South Africa, where he's both a professor of anthropology and explorer in residence for National Geographic. Lee is very interesting. He is basically the head of a team that looks around South Africa using satellite imagery and other technology, and they find cave systems all over the place that they map out and they go into and explore. And the purpose of their exploration is to discover the fossils of ancient humans. And they have found many. Lee's team discovered some years ago a species called Homo naledi, which was a new species of humans well before what we would call modern humans. And they've made many interesting discoveries around this species, as well as many others. Lee and I talked talked about all things paleoanthropology, including the story of how Homo naledi was discovered. What's interesting about the cranial morphology, the fossil structure of this species of humans. They have much smaller brains than present-day humans had, and yet they had some really interesting uh, other findings that suggested that maybe, maybe this species was actually engaged in ritual burials in these caves, which implies that they had actually very advanced cognition. Lee also described why he thinks we're in a golden age of paleoanthropology and that new human fossils will be found all over the place. There's actually many, many more fossils than we used to think out there, and we're going to have some very exciting discoveries in the area of human evolution and human fossils coming up in the near future. As always, if you enjoy this content, please like, share, or subscribe. You can watch the YouTube episodes or subscribe on YouTube. You can download or give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or any other major podcast directory. Today's show is brought to you in part by Dosist, an all-natural cannabis company specializing in dose-controlled cannabis products made with plant-based ingredients. To learn more about Dosist, their products, and where they are available, please visit their website through the link in the episode description. This episode is brought to you in part by Mudwater, a coffee alternative made with four different mushroom species and a blend of all natural herbs. Mudwater contains around one-seventh the caffeine content of a normal cup of coffee, so you can get the energy you want in the morning without the same chance for anxiety and jitters and the poor quality sleep that can come from drinking too much caffeine. Two-thirds of Americans, just about, are drinking coffee every single day, and the caffeine in that coffee has a half-life in your bloodstream of around five to nine hours for most people. So if you're drinking into the afternoon or evening especially, there's a good chance that caffeine is still in your bloodstream and will disrupt the quality of your sleep. So if you're trying to drink less coffee or you think you might have a caffeine habit and caffeine is absolutely a habit-forming psychoactive stimulant drug, check out Mudwater. Again, Mudwater has around one-seventh the caffeine content of a normal cup of coffee, which comes from masala chai, and it also contains cacao, turmeric, sea salt, cinnamon, and chaga, reishi, cordyceps, and lion's mane mushrooms. The other cool thing about this company is they donate a portion of the revenue to MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. We've actually had people from MAPS on the podcast talking about their research on MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD and their other work. So if you want to support that movement, this is one way that you can actually do it. So if you're interested in trying Mudwater, check out the website mudwtr.com slash mindmatter. You can find a coupon code with that link that'll get you $5 off in the episode description. So check it out. And with that, here's my conversation with Lee Berger. Dr. Lee Berger, thank you for joining me. Ed, thank you for having me on. Where are you calling in from today? I know that you're somewhere interesting. I'm in Johannesburg, South Africa. You're seeing uh, 
Um, Bedford View, South Africa, just outside of central Johannesburg behind you. I'm up on my rooftop right now doing this interview. Now, is it is it possible that some interesting wildlife will walk by in the background? Uh, it's pretty unlikely other than the two-legged kind uh, or my pets. <laughs> so can you tell me I everyone... just came out. I literally just came out of the bush. Uh, <laughs> not, not an hour and a half ago. I was in the middle of the cradle of humankind. Uh, some giraffe came by working on a new uh, small animal research unit that we're opening up. So it's not far away, about 35 minutes from us. We're in pristine African wilderness. Can you tell everyone what you do for a living and what, what your background is? I'm a paleoanthropologist. I like to actually say I'm a scientist who studies the exploration of the deep human journey uh, because our field is such a, uh, a multidisciplinary one, looking at almost every aspect of how we came to be. I'm also an explorer. Uh, I'm technically an explorer at large for National Geographic. I'm a research professor, though, by day at the University of Edwardesrand here in Johannesburg. How did you end up in South Africa? So that's a that's a probably longer story than a podcast of this deserves. But I grew up in rural Georgia, uh, born in Kansas, but my parents moved to Georgia at fairly early stage where I had some sort of deep historical roots. Um, always interested in the outdoors. I but grew up in a very tiny town called Sylvania, Georgia. Actually, I grew up 13 miles out of a very tiny town uh, called Sylvania. Um, always interested in geology, archaeology. I come from a sort of long line of frustrated uh, geologists who never got to do what they wanted to do. My father was in insurance and real estate. My grandfather was an oil wildcat in hmm. Texas and those areas. So I had this love for that, but growing up in sort of rural areas and being kind of a bright kid out of a small town, you kind of had doctor, lawyer, engineer, um, maybe politician as your possibilities for what you could do. And it was only once I got to college on a Naval ROTC scholarship, I began to realize there were other things that you could actually pursue. I took electives. I was, I was supposed to be a lawyer. I went into college at Vanderbilt University in pre-law, but then took electives in geology and anthropology and suddenly realized there was this world out there. Uh, I then later read a book called Lucy, and uh, I was going to be a dinosaur paleontologist, but then I read this book, and there was a, a sort of section of it that talked about the scarcity of these fossils of ancient humans, and it was in that idea of that there was this, you know, millions to one chance you might actually find one of these ancient human relatives. you got to remember at that time, we're talking about now the sort of middle-late 80s, there were actually probably more paleoanthropologists or people looking for these things than there were fossils hmm. that we'd actually discovered at that time. And I was intrigued by that because in my mind, there was this idea that if you even made one tiny little discovery, you could alter the way we perceived human origins. And that drew me into this field. And then that drew me to Africa. And I ended up eventually at the Harvard University Kubi Fora Field School, met Richard Leakey, said, you know, I, was just, I, I want to find fossils. And he said, not up here. You're not, you know, quite literally. Uh, it was, there wasn't space in East Africa. 
this was sort of the heyday of hard fighting paleoanthropology, late 1980s. And he said, but if you, you know, my recommendation would be go to South Africa. Now, that was a tricky thing in 1989 for a young person. We were still looking at a, a South Africa that was under apartheid, but there were rumors that Mandela was going to be released, all that. I'd also met Don Johansson personally, and he gave me the same advice. Go to South Africa because uh, there wasn't going to be room for a young American kid in East Africa, you know, finding fossils, is, which is what I want to do. And so I found Philip Tobias, uh, one of the great anatomical paleoanthropologists of, of their generation. He accepted me as his quote unquote last PhD student. And down and I came here in 1990, at least Mandela it was a change place. It was sort of like living through one of the great historical revolutions. And I started looking for sites. And within a year, I found a site called Gladysville and found two hominids. Hmm. And that was it. That was my life was changed, if you will. So before we, we get into some of that stuff, you mentioned Lucy. Can you give us an abridged story of what Lucy was? When, when was that discovery made and, and where in human evolution is that story? Well, I, I, I can answer the former and nowadays can't answer the latter. Uh, it was found in the early mid-70s. Um, at the time, there had really never been a partial skeleton discovered that both craniodental remains and postcranial remains found in Hadar, Ethiopia. Uh, and at dated at that time uh, around three to 3.2 million years. Uh, it was transformational in the field because we suddenly had something with some head parts with some body parts. That may sound astounding to people, um, but in early hominid evolution at that time, that was particularly rare. As I said, you know, literally a few hundred fossils had been discovered um, uh, in, in the 70s and 80s in early human evolution. Uh, it was also a time where we as a field sort of were still operating with all due respect is a sort of Victorian science. You know, we, we were looking for the ancestor of, of, of humankind. We, we had a view that there was this sort of lineal descent, even though, even in those sort of early-ish days of, of modern paleontology, people began to talk about, uh, you know, trees and then would later talk about bushes. The idea was still uh, the idea of an origin story. You know, the fossils we found we could cleanly put in. And the older fossil you found, the closer you were to our origin. And so Lucy became iconic as the poster girl for human evolution and and the earliest humans and 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 all the books and all the hype that, that went around us. Um and and so for a young impressionable student like me at that that particular time in the middle late 80s that she was the iconic fossil and the idea that we we had a a, a way of of building an, a, a literal puzzle of, of human origins i've of course come to i've come to change my mind but involved in discoveries that changed the world's mind about how we would actually view uh individual fossils in that way at, at that time to 
how how old is that fossil? Do we know about how old? Three that to three point two million years. Uh, belongs to the species Australopithecus afarensis, or or so we think. Um, that's another deep complex problem as we've come to realize that that multiple species existed at any one time. I remember uh, back in the middle 1990s, I was a co-chair of a major conference held here in South Africa where one of the leading paleoanthropologists at that time stood up and said only one species of hominid lived at any one time in the past. Hmm. And it's hard to imagine that wasn't that long ago, we're talking 30 years ago not even 30 years ago and yet that was the dominant opinion and how how the world's changed yeah so i mean we, we obviously look around the world today and we see ourselves we see humans we're the only species of humans walking around today a lot of people are probably have at least heard of neanderthals so at one point there were these two types of humans which could interbreed walking around different parts of the world would you say that for most of the history of our species, it was the case that we that we know today that it was the case that there were multiple, potentially many species of humans around the globe? I think that, you know, that I, I don't even have to say that I think that. It's a fact that today's an exception. The fact we sit here alone as a species it, uh, that... that uh, is is both unusual for large mammals. Most mammals share multiple species within not only the genera but closely related uh, species. It's an utter exception that 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 in in time in the past. It not only have there been you know you mentioned Neanderthals where people kind of think there were two, but in fact you had other hominids fairly contemporaneous with that the Flores hobbits. Were there, and I suspect that uh, within the next decade to two decades to three decades, we're going to see that 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 a hyper diversity in species uh, was the common uh, situation within our 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 group's evolution, that of the hominids. Now, that of course brings up the sort of unspoken question: you know, are they really species if they're there? Because mm -hmm. what we're finding with DNA. Uh, as we look at, at more more ancient genomes, is that 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 we're often introgressing with these species in the past, and so you know back when I was young, people said, "Oh, well, you know, species defined on whether you would mate with it," uh, and the mate recognition recognition theories and that sort of idea. Um, that's I think as we become more sophisticated, both with the understanding of variation in morphology and also in DNA, that was a very simplistic idea. We mate with other species and produce viable offspring. Many animals do. And so we're at a world now where the, the definition of species is a more complex thing. Hmm. So you mentioned when you, you were describing Lucy, Australopithecus. So what is an Australopithecine as opposed to a human? That's not as easy an answer. Again, I, you know, you keep asking questions that don't have simple answers. And, uh, you know, I, I have sat in museums with fossils we've discovered debating this with some of the greatest minds in paleoanthropology of is this homo? Is it Australopithecus? Is it? And often, you know, and that, that's a moving target. Mm -hmm. It's an idea that we're sorting out uh, because 
you gotta remember the way these genera, which is what you're talking about in Australopithecine, it's a generic level as opposed to species, which is like animates, efforts, a sediba, or Homo naledi, or Homo sapiens. <clears throat> those are those are, are are terms that don't have great definitions, and so we struggle with mm-hmm. that, and we attempt to um, uh, create definitions. So, my colleagues and I, in naming uh, and placing at least two species in new genera into existing genera, use the grade level that is their adaptive level. So when we're talking about something like Lucy or an Australopithecine, we're typically talking about uh, a primate cousin of ours that lived in the millions of years ago. Is that accurate? No, um, no. Sometimes you know we don't know. Um, often, you know, most most scientists they would tell you that the genus Homo, our genus, has been alone for the last million or so years. I suspect that that's a naive assumption. You know, but you're speaking to someone who's discovered sort of a wholly kind of different thing that existed out of time and place in the form of Homo naledi just a couple of hundred thousand years ago. I think that we've yet to get an understanding of, of, of how these different genera survived and adapted. Um, it's, it's a complex story. Mm-hmm. So where in, in the story of human evolution did something like bipedalism evolve? Do we know around about when that was? Yeah, yeah. yeah bipedalism goes back at least four and a half to five million years. Um, when you get to something like Artie, Artipithecus ramidus, uh, if you will, a, a, a species that was found in Ethiopia in the middle Awash, that dates to four and a half to five and a half million years, potentially. There's a lot of questions, is that a biped? You know, people like me who look at the anatomy say, no, it's not. But it's not a terrestrial habitual biped. I don't think it's hominid. Um, it's included in the hominid because the discoverers and, and there's a sort of ideology within our field that says that, you know, anything that's found in that time period that, that isn't a, a quadrupedal ape or a knuckle walking ape has got to be a hominid, but which uh, is generally or hominin, generally a, a bipedal ape. I, I look at the anatomy and say, no, I think it's an ape. I wish the discoverers had called it an ape as opposed to calling it a hominin, because I think it muddies the waters when you have something that has a prehensile foot, mm-hmm. which I think is critical for not being a biped. Um, and, and these hyper-elongated arms and hands that um, have elongation that are clearly adapted to um, climbing. But others have, have a different opinion when it comes to uh, a creature like that. Uh, I think it'd be more useful if we could actually unabashedly look at that and say, that's not a human. Um, but, but it was discovered at a time when people were talking about the idea of only one species of hominid at any one time in the past. Sort of a very ladder-like or linear look that is the middle 1990s, as recent as that. I think that uh, I think the, the whole hominid record of that period or the whole hominoid record deserves a reason. How do you actually tell, or at least guess, take your best guess, at whether or not a given fossil would have been capable of walking upright? That's a great question, because you have to have enough of it. And that's a very sensitive point amongst many of my colleagues. You know, I've been very fortunate in, in being involved with discoveries which have lots of fossils and skeletons, and we can look at the whole thing. 
um, that I think in being a discoverer of those kind of things, it gives you a different perspective because you suddenly realize you need a lot of something and a, certainly a lot of something to actually decide whether it is actually a bipedal hominid. Some people say, well, we have a lot of Artie, but we don't have a lot of very good stuff of Artie. <laughs> you know, the the pelvis, for example, I think by the original team that was driving, describing it had to be reconstructed 14 times before they got it right. And, hmm. you know, the cynic, the cynical scientist might go, how do you know you got it right? <laughs> well, wouldn't the first iteration be better than the 14th? And so it's, it's a, you know, but we're looking for key anatomical characters, you know, expansion of the pelvis, um, uh, the knee adapted, the critical sort of lower limb bones adapted to walking only on two legs while terrestrial uh, and uh, foot adaptations, adaptations of the spine. Um, and then, and then of course, also add, combined with that adaptations of the arms, but, you know, any one of those is not, you know, I think we found is we find these different, more complete specimens. Uh, and we think I remember there is a historical, this sort of a historical, legacy of this. You have to be sympathetic that those were found at a time where we didn't have that many fossils. You need quite a lot and quite a lot, many of those areas to tell if something is actually using its whole body to perform bipedalism. I'm, you know, even as I say this, I'm pro probably causing, you know, both nausea and heart attacks amongst senior members of our field who, you know, were defining hominids on dentition. Uh, because that was the most common thing found. That was kind of the tradition. You looked at things that weren't ape-like dentitions, and you said it's hominid. It's a biped. Um, you know, I, unfortunately, I think the fossil record discoveries, of particularly the last 12 to 15 years, have said can't do that. Hmm. Do we feel like, do anthropologists feel like we have a reasonably good guess as to why bipedalism evolved in the first place? I think smart anthropologists would say no. Interesting. That's the short answer. So what's, well, what's the long answer? <laughs> the long answer is a whole lot of different reasons. I mean, it, it is ranged through the history of our field from the idea of, of provisioning uh, for sex to carrying food, to tool making, to standing up to look over long grass, to more efficient ways, but bipedalism very efficiently at moving. It's actually surprising that it's so unique within the mammalian mm. sort of uh, history of evolution, but um, it's actually a very efficient way of walking long distances and moving, moving long distances from an energy perspective. Um, it, it, it's probably a lot of things and, mm -hmm. and it may have arisen many times. I think mm. you can't say any more, you know, again, you're talking to someone who's been sort of beat over the head by their own discoveries. Who've found things that people that I nor others didn't predict or expect within time and space, like Homo Maledi, for example, or, or Sediba. So I happen to probably have a, a very sort of, um, rose-colored image of the theories of of that until we we build and we will build a, a much better fossil record uh, but i suspect bipedalism has arisen 
uh, in many different forms over time, whether it comes from a single sort of adaptive lineage or it, it arose sort of, you know, like, like a watershed coming out of the sky in many different ways, I don't know yet. Are there any, you know, I would imagine that one way potentially that you would start to think about something like that is if when you are discovering fossils that show evidence of bipedalism, you also have some correlated factor in the ecology that might go with it, like maybe a change in in the density of the forest. Is there anything like that that tends to correlate with bipedalism? Well, you know, again, I think that unfortunately we're, we're you're you're speaking to someone who's in the very early stages of the field the field's very young mm. and a lot of you know the first the first 50 to 70 years of that field was spent stamp collecting <laughs> going out and looking at hominid fossils and not worrying about its context and perhaps the way the the later generations have have tended to observe context but but the real money's gone into finding hominids because they were rare they get you on the cover of nature and that sort of thing and a lot less time on sophisticated analysis of the ecologies not just broad ecologies but ecology specific to where those hominids are found and sometimes unfortunately the hominids don't come with great mm-hmm. ecologies and and a lot of our advances in things like geochronology and such have been made in the last 20 30 years a lot like being driven by you know the computer age and it's driven a lot of the, the the sort of you know where our advances were moving like this they move like this anyone who deals with technology knows that that's true and, and we're in the same state so I would be reticent to take uh, sort of ecological pictures we were drawing 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago and, and apply them with any level of sophistication to direct correlation with those sort of evolutionary questions. I see. I know I said, I'm, I'm probably giving you like the worst interview ever. <laughs> it's like I'm not answering. Well, I mean, I guess the, <laughs> I'm not the moral really of the story is it's just very hard because, you know, the, the fossil record is necessarily going to be so sparse. No, but it's not. It's hmm. not. That's also a myth. That's one I want to debunk. I think it's sparse because we quit looking because we believe the mythology that hominid fossils were rare. They're not rare. I mean, uh, my teams, without being, have discovered more. We've, we've discovered an equal number of individual hominid fossils to the entire fossil record. Uh, in the last six years, we've discovered an equal number of hominid fossils to the entire pre-existing fossil record in sub-equatorial Africa, if not in the whole of Africa. Um, they're not rare. Uh, the, the problem is we, we, we sold a story to ourselves that they were rare. The grant agencies then funded us to look in places where they are rare. Hmm. And we, we created a self-fulfilling prophecy. They, we're finding as we open up sites and we're going to be opening up more in the very uh, near future that, that they're not rare and and we should have been perhaps collecting those ecologies and the, the faunal diversity and studying those in a different way and and looking different places and they're not going to be rare in other places either as we move into other areas of Africa and other areas out of Africa we need more explore we need to reinvent an age of exploration and discovery hmm. so um, are, are you effectively saying that we at least partly didn't know how or where to look for these types of fossils because we presupposed that they were so rare. And if so, what sort of, what's your method for choosing where to look? 
So I'm, I'm kind of saying that, but I'm also saying that we got attracted. So yes, we believed our own myth. Um, we also uh, gravitated towards areas that, that, that had certain types of records. Um, and there are areas with, with better records that, that we could look. And so I, the, the, I, I, you know, if you talked to me a decade ago or 13 years ago, I would have given you a very clear answer on where to look. I would have given you all kinds of geological reasons. Now I know not to give that answer. That we need to encourage people to look in, um, in, in both the same type of places where we made discoveries past and places where we haven't made discoveries. Um, I, I'm reticent to answer your question and sort of dictate what a next generation will look for because my own life experience has said, the more we break the mold of where we're looking, the better chance we have of, of making discoveries. Hmm. It's, it, you know, it's backyard syndrome, right? You know, yeah, yeah. you've heard that term, right? Yeah. The places you think you know the best are the places you actually see the least. Um, and, and so that's why everyone gets on an airplane and travels tens of thousands of miles away from their own home to go look for things because it's going to be places where people haven't looked. That's, it's actually a self-fulfilling prophecy. Look in your own backyard. That's what I did eventually. It took me 17 years to learn that. And so is that, are you referring to their, the Rising Star Cave and the discovery? No, of I was referring to Sediba first. Oh, okay. Um, Where know, was that Sediba, one discovered? About 13 kilometers away from Rising Star. Okay. To, we're actually on the, just after the 13th anniversary of that discovery, a site called Malapa. I'd begun working at a place called Gladysville, spent 17 years working. And then eventually when I discovered Google Earth, at least became the last human being on earth to discover Google earth and started discovering that there were caves and other fossil bearing sites in the vicinity of this most explored area on the planet where <laughs> these very things that I was working in one kilometer away from Gladysville, I discovered the site of Malapa. It became one of the richest sites on the continent of Africa, the new species called Australopithecus sediba that we would eventually name. And then, uh, started working that, and then, of course, Homo naledi came along, and the Rising Star Cave system is, you know, 800 meters from the site of Swartkrons, and about a kilometer and a half from the site of Sturkentain, the longest-running excavation is in Africa, certainly, if not in the world, and it was right under our nose. And then, you know, more recently during COVID, we discovered this just incredible hominid site 500 meters from there. That we just, because we, you know, you don't look for great things right where you're working because you've been there so long. Uh, so it, it, it's a repeating story, that backyard syndrome. I, in every lecture I've ever given, I talk about it, I tell it. I've done so for the last 15 years. And, uh, I don't seem to listen to myself. Can you walk people through the beginning of the story of the discovery of Homo naledi at the Rising Star Cave? What what were you looking sure. for? Were you digging? Were you searching? So when the when I discovered Sediba in in two thousand and eight, I used Google Earth and I created this vast map of sites in, in an area that had uh, about a hundred known cave sites, this sort of dolomitic region, just outside of Johannesburg, where all these historical great discoveries have been made. Mrs. Plez and robust Australopithecines. 
And it was thought to be totally explored. I used Google Earth and suddenly realized there weren't just dozens of caves or hundreds of caves. There were hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of these sites. And that blew my mind. And so that led to discovery of Malala, which was, you know, a discovery of a life three special editions of science and, you know, I, I was living the, the dream, but I quit exploring. And then we were building a structure over the site of, 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 Sidi, uh, of Malapa where Sidiba was discovered. This is oh, that's, that's Sidiba right there. Hmm. The, um, we were building a structure over it so we could excavate because we'd found organic remains and other amazing things at this little site. And it locked me out of the site and I realized I had been exploring and so I wanted to get back out in the field, but I didn't want to, you know, just repeat the same exercise I'd done in 2008 when I made all those discoveries. And so I enlisted the help of former students and some amateur cavers to use that map to go underground into these vast underground systems. Now, at that time, there were sort of a, a, a mythology that you wouldn't find anything underground because that was young deposits the older deposits were on the surface because mm. you know the earth erodes showing you older stuff and the caves are forming underneath it so people thought it was younger it wasn't gonna be good stuff and uh and and so i sent them out with this map and you know within a month and a half if i had a uh, my my sort of gate uh, intercom bell went one night uh where I was getting periodic reports and in came Steve Tucker and Pedro Boshoff and opened up a laptop and showed me a picture that I couldn't believe. There were what looked to be primitive hominids lying literally on the surface in dirt of this very distant, uh, very hard to get to cave system. And that launched what would become known as the Rising Star Expedition, where uh, National Geographic agreed to fund really recklessly, a expedition. And I put a Facebook ad out to find people who could fit through a 14 centimeter slot that was 12 vertical meters. That's the Americans, 40 feet, 40 plus feet of, a, of this narrow vertical thing we called the chute into this chamber that I was going to recover a single skeleton. Because that would be spectacular, right? Because fossils are rare, uh, which turned out to be, you know, thousands of remains of this 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 creature, Homo naledi, uh, this tiny-brained uh, hominid that uh, has a flat face, has primitive and derived characters, and then we have it. We have we have not only that chamber, what we call the Dinaledi chamber, chamber of stars. This is called Rising Star. Um, and thousands of individual remains in there, but then the entire cave system, three and a half kilometers, is full of their bodies mm -hmm. in different locations, and we've continued that. So, okay, I mean, I have a lot of questions about this, but first, <laughs> before we get to like the actual... Me, me, me too. <laughs> <laughs> before we get to the actual fossils, I want to finish sort of painting a picture of this cave system. It sounds like it's not a giant big cavernous cave that you walk into from the ground level. It's a complex system of very narrow passages. What does it really look like on the inside? It, it, it's, it's, it's a mixture of almost everything you could imagine. It's a mixture of 
uh, large cavernous areas with stalactites and stalagmites, but the majority of the system of the three and a half to four kilometers, I guess now, it, it keeps getting larger as we explore, are relatively narrow passages and chutes that open up into sort of room-sized chambers and, and have side passages and all built along a, a fault system in, in, the, in the Dolomites. It's incredibly complex. Hmm. And so you said you have thousands of specimens. How many unique individuals do you think are represented for Naledi? Uh, that's, that's, that's kind of hard because it keeps surprising us. Cause you know, you're tempted to keep, you know, our temptation is keep reducing the numbers, but the numbers get larger between the Dinaletti chamber, the Hill antechamber, remote other chambers, the Lissetti chamber, and then some other discoveries that we haven't excavated yet. I, I, I think conservative, we were well above 30 and that's super conservative because unlike most excavations, because the hominid aren't that rare. We've left most of them underground. We take mm -hmm. out, you know, small portions. And, um, and so I, I, I'd say we're at 30 and there may be double to triple that easily so in dozens. the areas that we know about, about dozens, dozens, yeah. dozens and dozens. Of them. Yeah. So, you know, based on our knowledge so far, what would you say are like the salient anatomical features of this species compared to say modern humans on the one hand and, and something like a chimpanzee on the other hand. Oh, okay. I mean, let me start with, with the skull since I've got one here, they have a very small brain. Their brain is incredibly uh, uh, small. It's, it's, it approaches that of Australopithecines, even chimpanzees. Could you and hold that smaller... right next to your head? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, yeah. That actually works you, well. Now you get an idea, right? <laughs> So when I when I when I when I hold it close, it looks big. But that's what I think people are stunned. At. Look at the size of that, you know. And it's sort of when you look at it next to my face. Now it's right next to ear to ear mm -hmm. on these. So the brain's about a, a third to a quarter of the size of my brain. They have a, a, a flattened face. They almost have no nose. Um, they do have this kind of uh, um, superorbital torus here that that is is common in, in in some hominids but not very well developed what's striking is is sort of the shape of the cranium though is very like it's not like most archaic hominids it's actually more like homo sapiens mm -hmm. um it's it's actually very advanced in that the teeth are very small uh they're human size but they're shaped like uh, very primitive hominids there's no chin uh which you can see here there's no developed chin on it so uh, the, the cranium is this, this weird mixture of primitive and really advanced traits. Uh, the body continues that. Shoulders that are very ape-like, indicating some uh, climbing, a, a conical thing, shaped thorax like an ape and some early Australopithecines. But then it becomes more and more and more human as you, you reach the more distal portion. So the hands, um, while curved, well, well, quite curved. Um, uh, do you mind me getting up away from the camera? I can go get a hand. Oh yeah, yeah, great. Hey, hold on, hold on a moment. So, so for those just listening on the audio, we'll try to do a good job of describing this. But Lee is, you know, holding up fossil reconstructions of just a moment ago the skull of Homo naledi, and now he's bringing my, uh, a uh, hand my, specimen. My my area here is uh, filled with examples of <laughs> this is a hand of Homo naledi. Now, okay. well, the, the proportions are somewhat humanoid. Certainly, this part of the hand is very humanoid. 
the thumb is hyper elongated. So what we would typically have thought, an ape would be the reverse of this, right? An ape would have very long fingers here and a very short thumb, right? Mm. Because they're climbing, they're grasping. Uh, we tend to think of a long thumb as being a human thing relative to other things. Now, let me give you an example. You saw how small that head is. You can see how small these how, how small these fingers are. And let me put them in basically anatomical position to mine. Now I'm putting the wrist bones about where the wrist bones are. And look, you see how, how short mm -hmm. they are. Yeah, you see, it's, they're it's very, they're, the size they're of very short. That's right. But now look at the thumb in the same anatomical position. The thumb is, it's comparable to yours. Yes. Now think of that. So it's almost got a, a, a hyper ability that we tend to think of as humans. What's driving that? We have no idea. Yet they're, they're relatively, they're very curved, in fact, relative to human uh, curvature, which is, is about there. So it's, it's this odd admixture of, of, of what we used to think of as incredibly primitive and incredibly derived things. Some of them held only by us. The foot's the same way. The foot is extremely, extremely human-like as you approach the heel, and yet it has some curvature of, of, of the distal toe. The, the legs from a basically just below the pelvis down are, are almost entirely human. The pelvis, however, isn't human at all. It's got a very primitive character. It's got a very flattened uh, femoral necks, very tiny femoral heads, and a flattened flared pelvis like the Australopithecines. What does all that mean? I have no idea. Uh, and no one else does either right now. Um, they, if you looked at that hominid, and, and people said so when we announced it, they said, oh, well, this is just either a primitive Homo erectus, whatever that means. Basically, what they were saying was it's a hominid should be two million years old, two and a half million years old. You know, as primitive are more primitive than things like Homo habitus. That's what you would say if you were just looking at it. Mm -hmm. Uh, at the time when we discovered it, of course, we found out that it is, uh, you know, 250,000 years old to 300,000 years old, existing at the same time we thought only modern humans um, existed in Africa. And in, in fact, at the same time that we see an explosion of, of, of more advanced culture occurring here in Southern Africa. Hmm. So, so what you're saying, if I'm hearing you right, is this thing looks like it's super, super old and ancient, but in fact, it's only a quarter million years old. And at the same time, potentially at the same place, potentially even interacting, you can imagine, there would have been the what you would call modern human with fairly advanced cultural features. I think that's going to be the real, I, that to me is going to be perhaps the real thing that we're all going to have to grapple with over the next two days. We had all these suppositions, these ideas that modern humans had this sort of inevitable rise. Um, archaeology was following this pattern where we moved from the early Stone Age to an intermediate early Stone Age, middle Stone Age, middle Stone Age to late Stone Age, late Stone Age to the various later toolkits like the Iron Age and all of that. It all looked great, except Discoveries like this destroy that idea. Didn't happen that way. We thought that it was all being driven by big brains and there was this inevitable march towards a bigger and bigger brain. Oh, you know, if I have to be 
utterly blunt in, in my sort of assessment of where we are. We don't know that any of the anything that looked like Homo sapiens actually lived down here in Southern Africa at a quarter of a million years. The fossil record is appalling. The discoveries that we we associate with either archaic Homo sapiens or Homo sapiens, they all come from terrible geological context. And I, I'm including those from like Ethiopia that were, uh, you know, we think are securely dated like 180,000 uh, years or so. You know, the, unfortunately, things like Homo naledi also, because we suspect they were doing very complex behaviors, perhaps even burying their dead. Um, in those ways, you know, if if those are burials in at 180,000 in Ethiopia, then you don't know how old they are. They were picked up off the surface, effectively. And things like Kabwe, you saw Homo rhodesiensis, or some people call, um, it comes from a lead mine. You can't use dating techniques to do it. Floor is bad. The context is terrible. So, you know, we don't we don't have that correlation in any finite nature between these large brain things that look like us and this which doesn't look like us at all and you know we're with genetics we're seeing things like introgressions occurring there's there, there clearly was an introgression with another species and, and when in you say southern africa when you hmm? say introgression you you basically sex. mean mating. sex yes 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 mating sex yeah um we had sex with another species at a quarter of a million years in southern africa is this it I don't know. You know, people like Chris Stringer would say, no, it's got to be the big brain cobway things. But that's kind of on an idea that that's the way it, it should be in our mental picture. But, you know, how do you explain the things in Homo naledi um, that are only shared with Homo sapiens, mm-hmm. that aren't shared with these archaic Homo sapiens uh, and Homo erectus and things? I think it's really really complex. I don't know if you follow me on social media. About uh, uh, 10 days ago or so, I kind of was doodling one night and drew this kind of picture of this sort of complex interactions of hominids that I think is, you know, I think we're going to go through a really messy, wonderful phase um, of, of, of having to say we don't know. Mm-hmm. And it isn't working you know, the way we thought it did. And out of that may not happen next year, five years or 10 years, but in 20 or 30 years, we're going to, we're going to begin to knit this story together. It isn't, it isn't the story that I learned in anthropology in the 1980s. It isn't the story that any student learned in the nineties, nor in the, in the first part of the 21st century. That I'm a hundred percent sure. I, this is going to sound weird and not, I'm not even that big of a star Wars or a sci-fi fan, but I almost am imagining something like star Wars where you've, you've got this universe where there's a bunch of humans and things that kind of look like humans and things that look a little bit more different. And they're all sort of contemporaneous and potentially interacting with each other. One thing I want to ask you about is you mentioned there were so many specimens in this cave are is the volume and, and the number of specimens that you're seeing in a cave like this driven purely by like a geological thing, like the cave formed after they they the fossils were somewhere else, or were these hominids going into the cave and then dying? Yeah, they're going in the cave um, now. That that there's the million dollar question or million year question that we're going to deal with. 
is um, are they are they uh, are they going in there? Are they being taken in there by their relatives dead hmm. and and placed there? That's what we think. We hmm. think it's a we think it's a complex ritual practice. Other people say no, it's got to be a natural practice, but largely not based on any scientific evidence. Just that we can't have something with a brain that size hmm. doing something that complex. I think that anim modern animal studies, studies of birds and other things, have kind of you know we got to get over this arrogance of being human. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, other animals are complex. Now, what is really cool about this, and I, you know. It even gives me chills when I talk about it is, you know, just think if if this non-human species, that's not that's not a you know, that's that's not it doesn't have almost anything that we would have defined as human um, uh, until till now in it. If they were ritually disposing of their dead in this cave. And what if they're also the maker of a lot of that complex archaeology that we were attributing to the rise of the mm. modern human brain that's, that's surrounding them? You know, the surface is covered with a complex emergent archaeology that we call the early Middle Stone Age at that time. What if they're the makers of that? How fascinating is that? Mm -hmm. What if another species of animal, maybe distantly related to us, was inventing or utilizing complex ritual and, and, and practices related to death and dying and mm -hmm. all the things that that means, right? I mean, I'm sure your mind is going to, well, does that mean they had, yeah. you know, other things? So, so um, I mean, what, what, what is some of the circumstantial evidence that makes you think that this was ritual practice? Are there any artifacts that might suggest that? So um, I'm, I'm going to be cautious with how I answer that because of the timing of this interview. Um, uh, we have not announced any artifacts directly related with Homo delay. I see. Our initial idea, the initial hypotheses of, of uh, uh, related to ritual practice was they are there alone. There are no other animals with them, no other fauna. They're in these remote locations in a variety of different situations, and they're the only thing there. Hmm. If we argued, and, and still I've seen no one refute this, if you found humans in exactly this situation, there would no, be no doubt whatsoever that this was a mortuary cave. Um, it's because they're not humans that it gives, I think, archaeologists and people who deal with this sort of thing, nightmares. Hmm. Um, I, I will say that within the not distant future, we have what I would consider even stronger evidence that this is indeed a non-human animal practicing ritual uh, mortuary practices in these caves. What is fascinating about that is that it's occurring uh, you know, 200 plus thousand years before we have any inkling that modern humans are doing that. Hmm. So a couple places that my brain goes with this right away are, you know, presumably, A, it's very dark in these caves, and it sounds like they were going a fair distance into the cave. Hundreds uh, of meters. Since, since I can 
uh, safely assume they weren't using the flashlight on their iPhone to light the way. Uh, is there any indication that they were using fire to actually get into so, it? So, you know, your your assumption on the iPhone is just an assumption, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, you know, it's it's funny that that that, that is so surprising to people. The, we have evidence of of control fire and and hominins that go back well over a million years. Mm. I, I, it, it seems to be this bias towards it's got to be a big brain to use fire, but Homo erectus is clearly using fire. Um, the oldest, one of the best examples of potentially oldest controlled use of fire on the planet, probably well over a million years, is 800 meters from rising star. Why wouldn't something like this have fire? Do we have direct evidence? Uh, you know, I've been on a fast learning curve of the last five or six years of, you know, direct evidence of fire is a, a difficult thing to find, mm. uh, particularly at great time. We're working on that. So the other place that my head would go, so if, if this hypothesis is correct and these primates were intentionally going into the cave and this is a mortuary situation they have some sort of notion of death and potentially they're using fire to light the way have you seen anything yet it sounds like maybe the answer is no have you seen any sort of cave paintings or symbolism of any kind no not yet um again we we're we're in constant exploration of this cave and we are working on some things that are very, very interesting. Um, now we haven't seen cave paintings or, or that kind of ritual, but we don't see those in 99.9999% of the billions of human burials that we see. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's, that's, that's not calling. One of the problems we have is humans is we sit and stare into the past and we and try, try to impose a sort of national geographic image of what a burial could look like without even acknowledging that the vast majority of humans who have ever lived and died weren't buried that way, weren't disposed of in, in those mm -hmm. ways. They're exceptional because they make the headlines. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we, we, we're almost putting a higher standard on the past uh, than we are on, on the, uh, than we are on ourselves. In our own evidentiary. As I said, if, you, if, if we had found this accumulation of humans, there wouldn't have been a single question of this is not a, 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 a ritual mortuary practice in a, a deep cave. Hmm. What about DNA? Are these specimens one where it's plausible you'll be able to extract and sequence ancient DNA? Um, we've tried on a couple of specimens in the very early stages of this and didn't succeed. Uh, we are working on both ancient proteins and ancient DNA. I, I, I wouldn't bet against us. Interesting. And so potentially using this species as an example, but as a general question as well, how do you start to think about something like, say, the teeth and what that can tell you about the potential uh, diet habits of, of an ancient human? Um, you know, one of the we we've actually published papers on this on Homo naledi. If you just Google um, use Google Scholar, you'll see that we know that 
Homo naledi is doing things with its teeth, even the small that we typically only see in much larger toothed ancient hominids like Paranthropus and that, uh, eating very hard things. I, I, we will learn a lot about that. One of the complex things about naledi is because of its circumstances, we only find Homo naledi. Uh, we don't find all the animals and stuff around it. Hmm. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a living site. It's not a a site where there's fauna that we can see eaten in that. So we're doing a lot of work now. We're actually opening up some other sites uh, in the next few months that are in the region of the same temporal age so that we can actually begin to build what the ecology and environment of Naledi was outside of these particular circumstances. You know, we're, we're in this odd privileged state of having, I think it's fair to say, the, the singularly richest situation of early, of any early hominid species ever discovered on the planet and yet we had nothing about its world outside hmm. so it, it almost sounds like so the fact that you're you're finding only those fossils i guess that's consistent with the hypothesis that, that this was sort of a, a mortuary or intentional situation because i guess you're not finding cave bears that would have eaten them you're not finding butchered animal bones and other stuff right there with it nothing Hmm. Interesting. So it is. It's a. It's. It's. And if you have answers, please tell me. <laughs> How do you? Um. You know, I'm very interested in in trying to think about the social behavior here, but maybe as a way to to come at at that indirectly. What is the diversity of individuals that you're finding in the cave? Is it is it mostly older individuals and adults? Is it children? Is it males and females? Is it a mixture? What does the distribution look like there? It's, it's everything. Um, and, and you know, again, I'm cautious because we deliberately left many of them in because we want to leave them for the next generation to test questions that we develop, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, of this. But but it, it's, it's, it's everything from near neonates to extremely elderly individuals. This is, this one is Neo. He's a, we believe he's an old male, uh, an older male, probably in his, you know, late thirties to fit, approaching 50, something depending on how, how they were aging in their wear state right down to neonates. Hmm. And we've got everything. And we've got ones that appear to be females. And appear, but I think what we will sort that out, though. I mean, one of the great things about proteonomics is we like to build sex every individual. That's exciting. I see. So you actually have methods um, to do with, with potential, potential methods. I see. I see. We're, we're at the very front of all of that science. Interesting. So where... Where are some of these new sites that you're looking now? And what when, you, when you're thinking about where to look next, how, I mean, so much of this is just chance driven. How, how, how intentional. Not no, I'm going to stop you there. It's not chance driven. We're, we're, you know, we're, an exploration is a science. Um, and, and what we're doing is building on previous discoveries. We hmm. just only had about 13 or 14 years to learn um, about this new era of discovery. And so what you're going to see uh, over the next several years is us applying those, both the sites that we knew existed and new sites. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going, uh, it, it, Dr. Kanelwe Molopane is going uh, back to Gladysville, where I cut my teeth for 17 years, finding almost nothing. Mm. And one of the reasons she's going back in there is to show that we didn't know what we were looking for there. Mm. You know, we, we just opened up this new site 
during COVID, which goes by the exciting name of the 105 site, which is just a number uh, that was given to it. And it's now already one of the richest hominid sites ever discovered, right on our, right in front of us, literally right in front of us. Hmm. And, and we're in the midst of that discovery with, with these extraordinary fossil hominids coming out every day. And, and and the archaeology and the and the fauna that's around that. It, I, I just don't think we knew what we were doing. Hmm. We've got new eyes. So when you're thinking about looking for a new site, is it, it sounds like you 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 have a method for how you decide. Like how do you start ruling out places, and what are the features that are sort of front and center in your mind for where you would even start? So I, I'd actually suggest, I hope I'm not giving the impression, what, I, what we're trying to do now is actually reverse that psychology. I think that we used to explore like that. Hmm. I think we used to look for sites with the conceptual idea that they had to conform. When I first arrived in South Africa, everyone said, what you got to look for is baboons. Mm-hmm. Because the Tong child had been found with baboons, and then the, the first fossil that came out of Sturkfontein that brought to science attention was baboons. Same story went for Swartkrons and that. And that led to a self fulfilling prophecy. What we're really trying to do is say, actually, these things aren't rare. We're going to get after old sites. We're going to have to, some of the, we're actually deliberately going to sites that shouldn't happen by everything we know. And almost every time we're proving ourselves that that you know you shouldn't have these biases in science it's again backyard syndrome hmm. i'm i'm interested to know more about uh tool use um so it sounds mm-hmm. like there's certainly not been announced yet any tools found in the rising star cave system well i, I, I didn't i didn't say that i just didn't did not i didn't confirm <laughs> that <laughs> Um, so if, if we go back a quarter million years, um, to the time that Homo naledi was, was using this cave system, what, you know, elsewhere in the world, what was Homo sapiens doing with tools? What kind of well, tools were common? I, I can tell you that across Southern Africa, right outside the cave system at that same day are blades and mm. early blades and lithics and stuff all over the landscape. Okay. So... Well, Every archaeologist you might interview would say, oh, that's Homo sapiens. That's the emergent of the early Middle Stone Age, and that's when we're developing the human mind. I go, well, you don't have any Homo sapiens. But you do have is Homo naledi. And so, you know, a common a common theme that keeps coming up here is that we, modern humans, have had this tendency, and you see this not just in your field, but in, in many fields of science, we've had this tendency of you know, really thinking our, of ourselves as the center of the universe and the center of this whole story of evolution. And, you know, from Darwin all the way to the discoveries that you're making, that story kind of just, it just breaks down again and again. Absolutely. And again, why do you think we have this tendency to think that, you know, we were, we are the pinnacle of everything and everything was leading towards us. Because we're only human. I mean, you know, we, we sit and observe the world and we see ourselves as the only, we have seen ourselves for thousands of years as the only cognizant animal. I mean, every one of our religious stories is built around that, right? Every major book of religion begins with a story of why are we unique? Because clearly we've sat and stared at the world and understood that we are so superior to a donkey <laughs> or to a 
anything that we encounter. And, and, and we finally have reached a point where we actually begin to test that. And we find it fails. That not only are we not superior to these other animals in the living world, and, um, and they are often remarkably complex in different ways, but it's not true in the past either. So how, so, so another thing that's sort of another theme that, that I've learned from you and people like John Hawks is, you know, there were so many species of humans that were contemporaries of one another. And there was so much introgression. There was so much mating actually that at least more than we thought, which was, you know, originally we thought basically nothing, right. That there was almost, almost none. Um, but it was happening with enough frequency that we can see it in the genomes of Neanderthals in our own genome and elsewhere. You know, what does that make you think about in terms of contemporary humans and, and how we should maybe rethink, rethink ourselves and how we interact with one another, if those types of interactions were happening for so long? Well, firstly, I, I, I'd say that I think it goes, I, I'd go further than you did. It's not just interaction with other humans, it's other species. Mm-hmm. Um, we are introgressing, we're mating with things that, that technically fall out of the realm of the definition of a species variation. That's remarkable. It took us a long time to get to that, that point, and I think it's, it's pretty established right now. Um, you know, it, it is remarkable to think that a decade ago, as recently as a decade ago, we scientists would have described ourselves, and I did it plenty. I mean, if you look at recorded lectures from the sort of 90s that I was giving, of, of the idea that we were this thoroughbred. Mm-hmm. We were this out of Africa thoroughbred. We were a purebred species out of Africa model that dominated the world through that. We weren't breeding with other things. We just, we just won. We're more like a SPCA special. And anyone who breeds dogs or knows dogs knows the difference between these purebreds are not as fit <laughs> as, these, as these, you know, these, these sort of... These these mutts and curs and stuff that you 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 get and and we're one of the and that's what makes us great. We're this constant amalgamation, this braided stream of interbreeding with picking up things that work and things that don't work. We just got to get out of this mind that 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 it's this was this inevitable march to perfection. It wasn't. We are, are, are just this, this great amalgamating species that, that, that have, have become this globally dominant medium-sized vertebrate species for the time being, and a very dangerous one at that. So with respect to Homo naledi, what would you say are some of the big answerable questions that you and your team are, are looking into right now? I, I, I think we've got the chance to actually, almost for the first time in the history of this field, look at a, a bona fide population of an ancient species that was probably closely related to each other. We will look at variation, we'll understand sex, individual sex within it. We, I think we'll understand relationships. I think we'll know within five years whether uh, Naledi was related to us or not. I think it, any answer to that is going to be shocking and remarkable whether it is or isn't whether we carry its genome in us or not 
you know, I mean, if you think of, if, if our, I think we will test the behavioral things we have, and I think we'll come to some fairly firm conclusions that will, will, will convince or not uh, parts of the communities of, of the depth of complexity and time, you know, and, and understand whether it's emerged first in other species or multiple times in the past. I mean, you know, just let's just delve back into things like the the question of ritual mortuary practice. What if, you know, it's one thing to say, well, oh, well, maybe we learned, you know, we derived mortuary practices from something like millennia. They just invented it first. We just didn't see it in the fossil record. But what if it was independent? Mm. What if it was autonomous? What if it has occurred previously in species that aren't related to us? Because what spills off of ritualized mortuary practice? Recognition of death, self-mortality, the things that spill off that. What if it's occurred many times in the past? Mm -hmm. How fascinating would that be? How deeply would that force us to understand it? Or if we did get it from them, you know, what does that mean? Is there a God gene? You know, is there a sort of, you know, is there self-awareness gene that, that makes us aware? And we picked it up not from the way we thought, by gave this big brain, but from this tiny brain thing that was doing it already. And, and if it's present in something that looks like Naledi, which looks like a two million year old or plus hominid, when did it start? Mm -hmm. You know, did it start when we found it? Or did it start hundreds of thousands or millions of years before? These are the things that were, you know, how exciting for this next generation of scientists to have large amounts of evidence and all these just foundational questions in front of us and, and the technology and the mechanism tested and the, and the idea that there's more out there to be found. Remember, not a scientist, including myself, prior to... 2013 even predicted the conceptual idea of a creature like that on the African landscape at that time. How cool is that? Because <laughs> if there's that, what else is there? Yeah, no, no, it's amazing to think about. Um, I mean, even in my own lifetime as someone who's not in the field, I, I would have never guessed. And even when I was in college, I didn't get the impression that anyone was going to be finding sort of this density of, of fossils for humans or anything, anything like it, um, anywhere. It just, it and just, it's, ha it's happening all the time. Hmm. And so I, I, it sounds like there's many teams of people. It's certainly not just yours working on, working on this general area of ancient humans. What are some of the Absolutely. other what, what are some of the other sites in the world that are really exciting right now where, where new well, things I mean, are coming you're, out? You're getting this explosion of stuff in the in, in Indonesia and in the islands. I mean, uh, you know, of, of clearly adaptations going on that have great time dip there. You're getting the great stuff of the contact points between Africa and and Europe and Asia. You know, both on the African side and the Asian side, and the European side. You know, it's it, I wouldn't even. I wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be arrogant enough to pick a spot where the next big things are coming from because it's happening everywhere as this generation begins to understand that there's more out there to find. Another question I have is, 
you know, this is all very exciting stuff. I think almost anyone, you don't need to be a paleoanthropologist to find all of this stuff captivating. I'm interested to know how much of this research is going on with the additional question being who's funding it and, and, you know, is it underfunded? Is there an explosion of funding for it right now? And we're going to see more for that reason. What does that look like? It's massively underfunded. I mean, uh, and I think that's part of the problem that, that the field was dominated by a few central characters for so many decades that were just absorbing what funding was and messaging that we shouldn't be funding mm. other things. You know, if you read, I, you probably read some of the papers that come from sort of the late 90s and early 2000s where there were literally the top scientists in the field saying we should stop training paleoanthropologists. There's nothing left to fund. Um, literally in like writing. They, I mean, literally saying more or less that they had already found everything. Go, go read, go read uh, the state of paleoanthropology at the millennium by Tim White, 2001. Hmm. It will, they stop training paleoanthropologists. We are not going to discover new species. No one who has not handled a fossil should touch a fossil. Um, you know, they're a careerist and there shouldn't be any one but us pure scientists and that and the age of exploration is over. Hmm. It killed funding. And it, it, we still haven't recovered from that. We need to be pouring huge amounts of resources into exploration, field research in parallel with the extraordinary, particularly molecular work that's going on um, uh, in, in, in the world to really bring this into an age where it's a science and not a stamp collecting exercise. Hmm. What would you say to someone who, you know, I could imagine someone in the world, not necessarily an anthropologist, but maybe it's someone at a, at a funding agency saying, well, we, we've got a lot of contemporary problems. We need to be working on contemporary medical problems and things like this. What are we actually going to learn of practical value from, from this kind of field? Well, anyone who needs to, you know, I, I hope that we've reached a stage in human evolution where you don't need to uh, explain to someone why we need to study history, why we need to understand ourselves. Heck, they figured that out several thousand years ago, you know, know thyself. Um, but why we need to understand the past to truly understand the present. Science done as if it's in a vacuum of eureka moments isn't science at all. Science is part, uh, all science in the biological world is a product of understanding what has come before. And that's how you look to the future. You don't do it by just examining it. Hmm. You know, just, just to ask a, a couple closing questions, you've had a, a long and very interesting career studying this stuff for a while now. At a very high level, how would you say overall this has changed, you know, how you think about what humanity is and where it's going? When I got into this field, I, I was a believer in the idea that, that, that we understood the broad template of human evolution. I know that's not true. And as a scientist, that, that is, is, is I, I kind of feel that I'm in the middle of a moment, as, as all of my colleagues are, kind of the difference between where we were in the 1960s and 70s with the concern with the idea of observing space and what was out there and what would ultimately vis be visible to the extraordinary place that, that 
as we patrol the universe from afar that we are now, I think we're kind of in, in the sort of late seventies, early eighties of that uh, space exploration and understanding the universe and physics and that in human evolution. And that is, it's so exciting to realize that, that the best is yet to come that we are on the verge of the greatest age of discovery and exploration and archaeology and understanding this deep human journey. And, and, and this is, we're at this, this moment where we both, where we can see that, where mm-hmm. we can visualize that and know you're in this space. Most scientists don't get to live through a moment like that. And I feel very privileged to. It sounds like you've you've definitely got some exciting discoveries uh, that that are that that haven't been released yet. Do you or can you give us an approximate time frame for when we might learn more about Homo naledi? Oh, you're gonna within the next month or two is an extraordinary paper coming out, and I think you'll see sort of a progression of really great stuff coming out of almost every six months. Next, just don't hold your breath. Years. <laughs> Well, that's very exciting to hear. Um, another thing I want to ask you about is, you know, you, you sort of mentioned um, a few times that, you know, there's so much, there's so many new fossils, there's so much new data, so many new discoveries to be made. And you keep talking about the next generation. I wonder if you can comment on, you know, what if you're interested in this field, but you're not necessarily the type of person that wants to physically dig up fossils? What other sorts of fields and types of expertise are you interacting with to learn more about these ancient humans? Well, one of the beauties of, of this, and, it, you know, I, I've quit using, and you probably heard me kind of avoiding it, the word paleoanthropologist. Mm. I think it's too constricting. It has this, this sort of narrowing down to anatomy and bones and, and that. And that was under the idea that that's all we'd ever had. Um, this subject area, my new center that we've opened at, at Vitz here is called the Center for the Exploration of the Deep Human Journey. And the reason I chose that very long sort of um, uh, title is to reflect the globally multidisciplinary uh, uh, nature of the modern field. It'd be easier for me to tell you to, to say what fields we don't interact with, which is almost none. Mm. Um, from physics to engineering to geochemistry to geology to chemistry to uh, molecular biology to math to physics statistics to to computer sciences to all of the traditional fields they're all integral and a must-have part of this exploration of the deep human journey so go into anything and figure a way to apply it to understanding us One of the, um, actually the first guest I had on the podcast with us was this gentleman named Brian Marescu. <laughs> He's a dear friend of mine. Okay. So you we're, know, we're collaborating with each other. Interesting. Uh, we're actually, uh, we are actually working together on the psychedelic uh, problem and looking at exploring. And, and you can imagine for very obvious reasons mm-hmm. of the things we've been talking about all well, coincide within this. And, and, he and I are working on on joint proposals together, uh, and through Harvard and through Vitz and through others. So we're we're in close contact. I I think I have a call with him this week. Can but, can um, you can you sort of summarize what that line of thinking is and what you're looking for? Well, I mean, his he and I, you know, I I've discovered a species that may be experimenting with the sort of concept 
concepts of introspection and past, which have opened up the idea of opening up um, uh, sort of previously forbidden questions, if you will. That and and studies like his of looking at the way that mind-altering substances and and that may have affected our our, our the very way we think. Mm-hmm. language and all the all the things may have very direct uh, a test of the idea of us and other species developing these things and the beauty is is that we've reached a point where it's no longer mad science mm. it's some of the most testable science that we can do we can use mass spectrometers and other methods to actually test whether these animals and humans and and others are are, are using substances, what they're eating, what they're ingesting in the past. And we've reached a stage where it's not fringe science anymore. It's some of the central testable science that we can pursue. Uh, and when you're looking at the ideas of, of the exploration of the development of the mind in us and other species, well, you know, we're naturally magnetized to each other. Yeah, I mean, I, I was fascinated by Brian's book and some of the archaeochemical and botanical evidence that that he explored about you know humans thousands of years ago using things like ergotized rye and other things and 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 using their their knowledge of botany to intentionally ingest things for reasons that probably had to do with ritual ceremonies and and religious practice. Well, and, and let me let me carry that thought a little further. You know, people often don't think about, you know, you asked earlier, I think you asked something like what makes us human or how do you identify a human? And one of the interesting things which which Brian and I talk about a lot that, that we, we we people often don't think of is what actually does identify as humans? If it's not a big brain, if it's not this morphology, if it's not the toolkit, because we now know lots of animals do that complex what is it what are the universals mm-hmm. that, that that are amongst modern humans well one is ritual practices related to death that is a universal um, as far as i'm aware there's never been a modern human species or in the historical records or within archaeological records that, that they don't practice some form of ritual behaviors related to death and drug use mind-altering substances um amongst all animals that we're aware of so far humans are the only ones that universally across all cultures utilize mind-altering substances some animals do so but they tend to do it in populations or isolation in groups but it's not universal species humans do it as far as we're aware as far as i'm aware universally isn't that interesting Mm -hmm. so what if those are some of the part of the definition of being human that we we're 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 a living pharmacist and scientist as well as a living spiritualist in that and what if that has occurred in other species and whether that's part of the the thing that makes us Hmm. so you know for something like homo naledi something living you know hundreds of thousands or even or even hundreds of thousands of years ago or even older what would evidence for ingestion of, say, a psychoactive plant or fungus look like? What, what kind of uh, evidence might you find? Therein lies the reason of, for having think tanks and groups. No one's ever asked that question before. And we're not asking that question. And I'll, we'll let you know. <laughs> I'm, my understanding is that there are uh, methods 
being developed that have to do with um, teeth and, and teeth anatomy and bits of food and things that creatures were munching on can kind of get trapped and preserved inside the tooth. Is that is that my, my something that teams happens? Have, my teams have published in Nature on that. It's Sediba, two million years. Interesting. What what kinds of things do you find with a creature that old? You, well, you know, a decade ago, it was phytolis, parts of plants, you know, the rigid parts of, uh, uh, of plants that used to hold them up and other parts you can find, pollen, you can find other areas. Now, now we're, we're looking at molecular biology and that, and I don't know what the limits of that are. Hmm. Interesting. So, so you, it, it is within the realm of possibility that answer, we might get answers to the questions that we thought were almost not even askable questions uh, not that long ago. I think it's within the realm of science. Interesting. Uh, well, Lee, I don't want to take too much more of your time. I know that you're on a very different time zone and you, you've got plenty of exploring left to do. Are there any final thoughts that you want to leave people with about human evolution, generally speaking? I, I just... You know, it's going to sound like a, a, a sort of rehearsed phrase, but I, I, I truly do mean it. When I, you know, if I can say one thing to everyone, no matter if you're old or young or whatever, or entry, never stop exploring. That's the singular message that we, we have a tendency to quit, to believe that things have been found or seen. Don't stop exploring. Lee Berger, thank you for your time. My pleasure.